Welcome to Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our 13th episode, Real Clear Politics co-founder and publisher Tom Bevin talks with Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, about President Trump's foreign policy. Then, Real Clear Science editor Ross Pomeroy talks with Valerie Aquino, the national co-chair for the March for Science, about this weekend's Rally for Science. Here's Tom's talk with Richard. I'm Tom Bevan, co-founder and publisher of Real Clear Politics, joined by Richard Haas, who is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of a new book called A World in Disarray. Richard, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tom. So the title of your book is a perfect starting point because that's exactly how the world feels. Um, the book was published before, in early January before Donald Trump took office, and we're now approaching the 100-day the mark of the Trump administration. How do you think that Trump and his team uh, is doing so far in managing the world in disarray? The short answer would be they inherited a world of considerable disarray, and they have added to it. Uh, both by what they have done and uh, said. So I, th- I think essentially they've made a tough situation a little bit tougher. Can you elaborate on that? What do you think they've done right? What have they? Where have they made things worse? I think they made things worse in the international economic area by taking the United States out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Uh, it raised fundamental questions about American reliability after for years we had negotiated this agreement. I also think it's bad for the U.S. Uh, economy. One, I can give you a few other negatives. I think the, the policy on uh, homeland security won't make us safer. Uh, and it will uh, ultimately hurt the economy because uh, the, the bias against immigration removes one of the drivers of American uh, economic uh, growth. More broadly, I think they're, they're scapegoating both trade and uh, immigration for what more than anything has to do with uh, technological innovation and job destruction. So I think they're right to be worried about job loss, but they're wrong in the so-called remedies they're proposing. Uh, I think some of the questioning of the value of alliances has raised real uncertainty around the world amongst friends who, by definition, rely uh, on us. I think uh, the uncertainty about what they're going to do on climate uh, change policy has again raised questions about uh, the orientation of the United States. I think it's good that they've re- they've reverted though to a, uh, a more traditional policy towards China, and I think it's good that they are focusing uh, on North Korea and essentially not allowing issues like trade or Taiwan to get in the way of a uh, focus with China on uh, North Korea, which is arguably the most urgent national security challenge. I supported the use of force in Syria, in Syria after the Syrian government used uh, chemical weapons, and I thought the administration got it about right there, that they responded directly, but they didn't turn it into American entry into the, the civil war in Syria, which would have been a, a, a bridge too far. So you know, I can go around the world and give you examples of you know, where I agree, where I disagree, where, where I think they've added or detracted from from stability in the world, but I think the, the overall thing has been to add a, a, a new layer of uncertainty about uh, American uh, intentions, about uh, where we're going to go, whether we're prepared to meet historic commitments. And this has got a lot of people in the world uh, on edge. And all things being equal, I don't think that's a good idea, simply because I'm one of those who happens to believe that this is a world that has done pretty well by the United States, that over the last three quarters of a century, 
get up every morning thinking about how I disrupt it, I'm more interested in finding ways I can preserve it. Let, let me ask you about North Korea. You mentioned that as perhaps our most urgent challenge. The administration has, has taken that uh, issue sort of head on. Mike Pence is over in Asia, has been using some strong talk. How, first of all, how much leverage does China have and, and are they willing to use it? And just how destabilized is that situation in your, in your opinion right now? The situation really matters. Uh, you know, North Korea has somewhere upwards of a dozen or so nuclear weapons and their ability to take those nuclear weapons to keep producing them, by the way, and then to put them on top of missiles that could reach the continental United States. That is a, uh, gotta be a troubling prospect for anyone and everyone in this uh, country. And we could turn to deterrence or defense to, to, to provide for our security, but that's, shall we say, uh, imperfect at, at best. So this is, this is a serious situation. Uh, China has enormous leverage over North Korea because most of North Korea's trade goes in and out of China. Uh, the problem for the, from the, for the Chinese and the problem from our point of view is that China has historically been largely unwilling to use its influence right. simply because it feared that uh, too much pressure on North Korea would bring it down. And the Chinese don't want to see the unification of the Korean Peninsula uh, under a government with its capital in Seoul that's close to the uh, United States. What I think the administration, though, has done, which has been effective over the last couple of months, is essentially communicate to China that the, the couple of decades of what's called strategic patience essentially was drift that began early on in the Clinton administration has been embraced by Republicans and Democrats since, uh, that we can't afford that anymore, that China has to recalibrate its policy because policy, we, we have essentially told them that North Korea is getting awfully close, dangerously close to a capability that we are likely to find intolerable. So I think the Chinese have gotten the message that they have got to uh, use some of that influence they say they don't have, but in fact they, they, they do. So I actually think that's been a step in the right direction. You also mentioned Syria. Let me ask you, you supported the use of force there, um, but not intervening in the civil war. And I guess the next question that everyone's asking about Syria is, do you think there can be a, a political solution is there a political solution to be found in Syria with Russia and Iran? The short answer is no, or at least anytime soon. I think the best we can hope for in the next couple of years is that there's no further Syrian use of chemical weapons, and that we will defeat ISIS in the part of Syria around the city called Raqqa, where they are concentrated. We will reduce the threat from ISIS there. They will be killed or dispersed. And hopefully, and this is a big question mark, we can add or introduce security and stability to areas that are liberated. And this will mean keeping various competing parties apart and also working with locals. So if we can do that, if we can liberate some parts of Syria and make it possible for Syrian people to either stay there or return there safely, uh, I think that's, uh, that, uh, that would be real progress. I think getting a political dialogue where ultimately Bashar al-Assad gives up power uh, which in the long run is necessary if Syria is ever going to stop being a war with itself. But I, I just don't see that in the cards anytime soon. Uh, he is strongly supported by uh, the Alawite community. He has tremendous support from Iran, and I don't see the Iranians backing away from him ever. And the Russians have also been supportive of him. Now, at some point, they may decide that their interests diverge, uh, but they're not there now, and they won't be there uh, anytime soon. So I think the a quote-unquote political solution for Syria is a long, long, long ways off, and it involves, but goes way beyond 
getting rid of Bashar al-Assad. It means putting into place an alternative government that has both the capacity and the legitimacy to rule over, over all the country, getting rid of all these various terrorist groups, creating a real sense of national identity. That, uh, I'm not sure that ever quite happens. So again, my focus, and I think the administration's focus, is more on defeating the terrorists and by at least creating some, some parts of Syria where people can, can live uh, with a high degree of, uh, of safety. We're speaking with Richard Haas, who is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of a new book called A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. Richard, uh, we've seen, uh, we just had an election, a referendum, uh, actually, in Turkey, but we've, and we just had this week, a uh, surprising announcement from the Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain that calling for a snap election on June 8th. Uh, we've got an election in France coming up uh, this weekend. Germany's on the docket this year as well. Give us your sense of what's going on in Europe. Is Europe disintegrating? Is it cracking up? Um, how do you see these these elections playing out? What are we going to be looking at uh, in Europe over the next you know 12 to 24 months? Well, in some ways, Europe's the most surprising uh, part of this world of disarray. I mean, as recently as, what, three, four years ago, Europe looked to be the opposite of disarray. It was stable, it was peaceful, it was relatively prosperous, and essentially we had the, the luxury of worrying about other parts of the world. Suddenly now you've had you know, Russian use of force in uh, Ukraine, takeover of Crimea, massive refugee flows, we've had Greek and other financial crises, we've had, we've had Brexit, and now we face uh, the prospect of a French election where it's not inconceivable that the next president of France will be someone who essentially wants France out of both the European Union and NATO. At least two of the candidates are essentially embracing those those policies. So this is something that uh, I didn't see uh, coming, I'll be honest uh, with you. And you've got other challenges as well. You mentioned the fact that Turkey uh, has essentially become uh, an author authoritarian country that bears little resemblance now to uh, a, a European country. So you've got all these uh, issues. I think the French elections are the, the, the turning point. If a traditionalist, at least two of the candidates running in France are traditionalists, if one of the traditionalists were to win, and we'll know that May 7th, then I think that in some way stops, stops or at least slows the hemorrhaging in Europe. And then you could see a reform project between the new French president and the German chancellor. Uh, and even though you've got you know reform project rather about the EU, which is much needed, uh, I think that whoever wins the German elections in the fall, it doesn't much matter because you know, whether it's Merkel or the alternative, they're, they're quite centrist. Uh, and then you can begin the long-term task of uh, reforming the EU. We've already got certain things going on about strengthening uh, NATO. So I think then you've kind of, you hold the line. If, however, the French elections go the other way and one of these, these radical far-left or far-right individuals were to win, then I think it could be the end of uh, the EU and the entire European project as we've known it, possibly even lead to the partial unraveling of NATO. And I know, well, that sounds dramatic, but I don't, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration. So this is, this is one of those rare moments where I actually think a lot of history is going to be decided uh, in just a couple of weeks. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, let me ask you quickly about Russia. We've just got a couple minutes left. Um, there's been a very sort of dramatic about face, uh, you know, with the administration, uh, even in this first 90 plus days, uh, given, you know, Trump had 
signaled, spoke very highly of Putin, wanted to work with him, and and now there seems to be uh, after the uh, after the Syria bombing uh, some some bad blood there and a falling out a bit. Take me through your thought process. What do you think of of the current uh, relationship, administration's relationship with Russia, and where do you see that going? Um, and how important is that relationship uh, here moving forward? All good questions. Uh, it's, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult because unlike China, which, by the way, is nine or ten times the population of Russia, but also China is, is heavily integrated into the global economy. It has all sorts of normal relationships with many of its neighbors. Russia is anything but. Russia is an outlier. It's a spoiler. It's a narrowly based, one-dimensional economy essentially based on oil and gas. It's, it's one approach to international relations is largely one of coercion, whether it's using military force or, or cyber or some or energy as a, as a as coercive tool. Uh, and, and it's also relatively unconstrained. And by that I mean if Mr. Putin wants to do something, there's no one in Moscow who's going to stop him from doing it. And that degree is essentially deinstitutionalized decision making in his country. And that, that, should, that should worry people. And we've seen the, what happened in Ukraine. We've seen what happened in uh, Syria. So I would say two things with Russia. At a minimum, I think we've got to stand up to them. And I would say that means, among other things, uh, looking, at, looking for ways to sanction them for what they did with cyber. Uh, it also means strengthening NATO so they, they're never tempted again to use force in, in, in Europe. On the other hand, I don't want to isolate or humiliate them. And I'd be willing to talk to them uh, about where we would potentially work together in, say, Syria. I'd be willing to talk to them about cooperation against terrorism or maybe doing something in uh, Afghanistan. There's a, we could revive various types of arms control negotiations. So uh, it may sound contradictory, but I don't think it is, that we need a relationship at one and the same time that's both tougher with Russia, but also that is more involved with Russia. And I, I actually don't think that's impossible. But first, we've got we've to create a context where Mr. Putin understands that he simply is not going to have the ability to, to use force unilaterally and, and benefit from it. Last question. Uh, there's, even within the first uh, less than 100 days, there's a lot being written and speculated about what is the Trump doctrine? And I know that was also a big theme. We're always searching for doctrines. And I guess my question is, first, uh, do you see any threads of an emerging Trump doctrine? And, and second, is is finding a doctrine overrated? I mean, how important is having some sort of uh, some doctrine that is an overarching, uh, you know, vision of foreign policy, especially given how volatile the world is at this point? I think it's useful to have a doctrine or at least something of an intellectual compass. There's so many things coming at you. It's useful to have some mechanism for determining priorities, for trying to act with, with greater consistency, for making long-term plans. So you don't want to do everything by the seat of your pants and make decisions in isolation. That said, it's going to be tough to come up with one, particularly since this administration's only been in office for uh, now 100 days. You've got very little foreign policy uh, experience. A significant percentage of the uh, important seats at the table are still... Uh, are still unfilled. So I think all the talk of doctrine has to has to essentially be put on hold for quite a while. But you know, doctrines are usually deal with things that are big and lasting. And I don't think yet this administration has policies that would that would qualify. Uh, I hope it doesn't become though a, a doctrine you know, that you know, that's sort of built on the idea of America first, a more isolationist, more unilateralist. 
uh, America that rejects a lot of global arrangements, be they trade and everything else. That could become a, uh, uh, a doctrine. I, I, I hope not. But I, I, think it's, I think it's still premature, and I think this administration has to sort itself out uh, intellectually as well as uh, procedurally. And it's possible that, that one will at some point uh, emerge, but, but so far at least uh, it, it, it's, it's way too soon. And there's, there's enough contradictory elements out there. Uh, that it would be it'd be really hard for any individual to say, here's the here are the dots now go connect them with a line and call it a doctrine. I, I just don't think we're there. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of a new book, A World in Disarray. Thank you for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Now here's Ross's talk with Valerie. Hi, I'm Ross Pomeroy, the editor of Real Clear Science. Today, we'll be discussing the upcoming March for Science. Slated to take place on Sunday, April 22nd in Washington, D.C., and more than 500 other cities around the globe, the March aims to defend the vital role science plays in our health, safety, economies, and governments. As many as a million marchers are estimated to turn up in support. With me today is a co-chair of the March, Valerie Aquino. She's a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of New Mexico. Aquino specializes in archaeology and paleoclimatology, investigating the relationships between human societies and the environment. Born in the Philippines, her family immigrated to the U.S. when she was six. Since that time, she has lived and worked around the world. Valerie, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Really excited to be here. First question, how did the march come about and what prompted it? Well, the March for Science started this January semi-simultaneously across several social media platforms. And so different groups of people were talking about it independently on Reddit and Twitter and Facebook. And within a couple days, um, people merged together to start organizing in earnest. And I was on the Facebook end of it, and I watched the group grow from just a couple thousand people to overnight tens of thousands of people to um, half a million people within just a few days. Uh, so this march in D.C. quickly became marches all around the U.S. and around the world. So right now the current list stands at 518 marches around the globe, last I looked, um, including one in the North Pole, which is exciting. And I'm crossing my fingers and toes that somehow the ISS can participate somehow too. Yeah, that'd be incredible. It'd truly be an uh, international, more intergalactic march if we did that. That's right. Science is universal. <laughs> Great. So what are the goals for March for Science? So our goals um, number a few. They are to humanize science, to partner with the public, to advocate for open, inclusive, and accessible science, to support scientists who are threatened or muzzled, and to affirm science as a democratic value. And we're gathering together to send a message that we will all work to ensure that the scientific community is making our democracy stronger. Sound like worthwhile goals. Um, was there anything political that really started the march, like something happening in the administration or in politics? What really prompted this thing to get going? 
Sure. I definitely, you know, seeing on the Facebook comments and the Twitter threads, see a lot of reactions to the current political climate. And um, there were some moves, egregious actions that were taken by the administration that prompted a lot of concern about the role of science serving society. And that included certain phrases um, and certain sectors of science being targeted and threatened. And there were also drastic budget cuts that were proposed that would impact our everyday lives. Um, and so there, there have been a variety of reasons. And then, you know, I think overarchingly, the fact, the fact um, that there are multiple, um, that there are alternative facts that are even being brought to the table has has been deeply concerning, but again, the march is beyond the United States borders and beyond um, and beyond this administration. Uh, there are marches in Greenland and in England and in Mexico, uh, all over. So this resonates the the need to champion and defend science and its role in serving society um, has resonated among many diverse communities around the globe. Great. So it sounds like it's really just about making sure that facts are honored and that everybody understands that facts are facts, and that's one of the big one of the big goals. It sounds like that's right. We really want to respect and support scientific integrity, and we want to hold people accountable, especially when they're in positions to enact policies and regulations that affect all of us. And we really want to make sure that they're accountable to to high standards of scientific integrity and honesty. You listed, as you mentioned, there are a lot of a lot of goals, numerous goals that the march has. Some of them seem a little bit abstract. So I was wondering if there are a number of concrete policy objectives for the March for Science, uh, including maybe science funding, open science, which would be making federally funded science open access and available to the public, anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. You can visit our website. We've got our principles and goals on there. And just really briefly, I can run down our core principles. We want to champion science that serves the common good to... Um, to support evidence-based policy and regulations in the public interest, to promote and support cutting-edge science education, and to increase diversity and inclusion in STEM, and absolutely for promoting funding for scientific research and its applications. Um, defunding and hiring freezes in the sciences are against any country's best interests, and science um, undergirds our economy and and promotes um, prosperous democracies. And so no really specific things policy-wise yet? Nothing really you're taking aim at? Well, uh, we're working on a couple of projects and we're going to have, um, we're crafting a policy platform and an open letter that will uh, hopefully be launched uh, in the coming days. Oh, looking forward to that. Great. Yes, they do. <laughs> Uh, so uh, there's a lot of misinformation I'm sure you noticed on the internet and a uh, number of shoddy science in certain disciplines. Um, so it can be very confusing for the average person to determine the state of scientific evidence. The march clearly and correctly states that it accepts the overwhelming evidence for evolution and man-made climate change, but those aren't the only scientific issues. Does the march, for instance, take a stance on, say, GMOs, alternative medicine, vaccines, or nuclear power? 
Well, we have a really broad umbrella, and I have my my personal stances and positions on that. But what I think that's been most incredible is seeing the groundswell of support among scientists and the general public for this march because people are appreciating and understanding that science improves all of our lives and that it's under attack, it's under threat. And science brings us these life-saving medical cures and provides safer products for our kids. And so it, it seems to have this disconnect with why science is being ignored by policymakers. We all want clean water, we all want fresh air, um, and we all want to have improved and longer lives. Very good points. Um, but uh, I got to ask again, I mean, I, I'm a sort of a science editor, so I deal with the science on these issues a lot. I'm, I'm just curious if the, because I, I, know, I know you guys are very pro, you know, uh, evolution and man-made climate change, which are real issues, and, you know, evolution happened, climate change is real. But I'm just curious why you're reticent to take, uh, not take a stance on other issues that are similarly cut and dry, like, for example, GMOs, GMO safety, 88% of uh, AAS scientists believe that GMO food is safe. Uh, vaccines, of course, they don't cause autisms, and we've seen Donald, the Trump administration potentially take some disconcerting moves there. And nuclear power, NASA-funded study actually found that between 1979 and 2009, nuclear power plants prevented 1.8 million deaths and 64 gigatons of CO2 going to the atmosphere. So I'm just curious why you're not taking a stance yet on any of other issues besides climate change or evolution. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you on all of those things that you just pointed out. And science, one of the things that we really want to express and demonstrate is that science isn't divorced from the rest of humanity. That's why we're really pushing for scientists to get out of their comfort zone a little bit and to, to advocate and be vocal champions of science. Um, but at the same time, knowing that it's not divorced from the rest of humanity, that science um, absolutely should inform policymaking, but it may not necessarily dictate it because there are so many other social and personal and economic concerns that must be debated um, rightfully and to figure out what what is the best course for the community? Great points. Uh, let's move on. Uh, I'm sure you're aware some scientists and writers have critiqued the march for being too ideological, too partisan, and lacking focus. Uh, for example, in the New York Times, uh, Robert Young wrote, uh, trying to recreate the pointedly political women's march will serve only to reinforce the narrative that scientists are an interest group who politicize their data, research, and findings for their own ends. Uh, how do you respond to this critique and others like it? Well, just pointedly, specifically uh, with Robert Young, there was an article that I had interviewed with as well as, as Robert Young. Um, and in it, he said that he's planning to participate in the march in Vienna because he'll be in Austria for a conference. So we may have influenced that a little bit, um, I would like to think. But j just broadly to, to answer your question, um, this is this is not the time to stay silent. And in addition to the rallies and the march that are happening, we have a long-term vision, absolutely, that it's not just going to, uh, that one day is not going to change the things that we want to see changed. And so all of these other approaches and community outreach and having really important, um, continuing these important debates uh, within and across communities will be part of, of building the movement together to, to defend science and to promote its role in society. 
Oh, that's a great point about Robert Young. I think that's one of the what's on, what's one of the nice things about science is that people that scientists are willing to change their mind to, uh, to new information and arguments. So I think that's a very cool point that you made. That's one of my favorite things about science and and it providing us with the best tools to to address our problems and our inherent human biases. Well, let's talk about uh, after the march. How we're going to really uh, how scientists are really going to make some changes. So uh, once the marching stops, what are the next steps? How do you get politicians to listen and stop governing on anecdotes and start governing on evidence? I know this is a hard. I know it's a hard question because I think uh, a lot of scientists and uh, onlookers have been wanting this to happen for a long time. But I'm going to still give it to you. <laughs> yeah. So definitely, April 22nd, um, the march is going to happen, and the very next day, uh, it doesn't end. That's when the movement begins. So we'll we will be encouraging marchers to continue um, being involved in advocacy after April 22nd by engaging in ongoing science education, strengthening the bond between scientists and the public, and fighting discrimination in our own institutions and our communities, and insisting and applying pressure to legislators to propose, support, and enact evidence-based policies. And more concretely, um, Although the march ends on April 22, we're going to launch immediately into a week of action that following day on Sunday the 23rd. And the week will be focused on building the movement by inspiring people to join who haven't yet. Um, we, were, we will be registering people to vote. We will be providing tools and resources for people to take actions from the local to federal levels and generally um, driving people to this important public debate about science and policy actions. Uh, we're definitely going to keep encouraging marchers to stay involved through outreach and, and applying pressure to policymakers. Um, we're committed to this. We're seeing a lot of excitement and we're channeling that energy into a movement that grows outside of um, April 22. The march calls for science to be put back in the hands of the people, encouraging scientists to reach out to their communities to share their research and its impact on people's everyday lives. As a scientist, how have you personally done this, and what advice do you have for other scientists, both in the public and private sector, thinking about beginning this conversation in their own communities? Oh, perfect. Yeah, so actually I have been involved in a lot of community outreach and community building efforts for a very long time. I used to be a big sister with Big Brothers Big Sisters in Alaska, and I would support science education and science initiatives and just generally um, critical thinking and, and curiosity. Every kid's a scientist, so I wanted to be involved uh, with, with, with developing and nurturing that kind of curiosity uh, with people, with very young people at an early age to, to instill that um, in them. And also as an archaeologist, I spend a lot of time working um, in Belize, and my dissertation site is in a modern Mopan Maya village. And every season when we finish our excavations, which uh, we cooperate and organize and work with our archaeological excavations with the members of the community, um, so we, we, we're sure to keep um, the dialogue going there about what we're doing, what we're finding, why it's important to us, um, and what we hope to do with it. And then we show... Um, 
the whole community. We invite everybody to come and ask us questions and to see all of the artifacts that we've um, that we've uncovered together. Um, so those are some of the ways that I've been involved, and I know that a lot of my colleagues um, are. are are engaged in, in different approaches to kind of help dismantle the, the perceived and real barriers that some people um, see as separating the, the scientific community with the general public. So what advice do you have for other uh, scientists to do, hopefully replicate what sounds like you've been doing? Well, I do see a lot of people engaging in outreach efforts, but what I would love to do would be to help promote and um, and encourage institutions to incentivize outreach and to reward outreach efforts by employees. That would be that would be fantastic. So, seeing more universities and colleges actually taking efforts to get their scientists out of the classroom and into the community. Sure, yeah, and I know that, you know, there are several programs that have been initiated to help promote this, but I'd love to see it spread and to be really embraced as part and parcel of being an educator. Um, you know, so often we just think about publications or conferences or books and these other types of projects that could become a little bit insular, and uh, there are independent and individual efforts to engage in community outreach outreach and working with after-school programs or um, with high schools and um, and doing a lot of different things to, to promote science. But I would love to see institutional support behind that and to reward and incentivize those efforts. Science has seen most political success when citizens can rally around a signature issue. In the past, that issue has been spaceflight, with the Apollo program when we raced Russia to the moon, with the Hubble Space Telescope, which has given us so many extraordinary photos, and with the International Space Station, which has shown how the world's countries can cooperate in the name of discovery. What other issues do you think could really galvanize renewed public and political interest in science? Well, I think, uh, you know, the message of, of defending science and scientific integrity and promoting scientific principles to solving problems has been what's most resonated among communities around the world. Um, today, sound science is at risk. One of the things that we know is that we've just lived through the three hottest years on record, but climate science is being ignored and maligned and High, uh, partisanship has injected itself into something that is inherently not partisan. Um, policymakers are proposing massive cuts to departments responsible for the safety of our drinking water, the air that we breathe, and the food that we eat. The world um, is facing so many modern problems from uh, diseases and maternal mortality, but the president has proposed a budget that would stall research and put us further behind in the race for cures. We rely on technological advancements for everything, from everyday tasks like using the internet, us Skyping together for this interview, to global needs like national defense. But the data, the labs, the engineers driving these innovations are being under-resourced. Um, so I think together, this March for Science, what we're doing is actively promoting nonpartisan science advocacy. This is a movement and not just a moment. 
So perhaps it sounds like maybe out of the out of the rise of this modern era of uh, mis misinformation and some are saying alternative facts, we can actually galvanize around science, the search for truth. That's really one of the silver linings in doing this. Absolutely. It's just seeing all the excitement and momentum, like I said, on the Facebook end of it, which I, I used to help moderate. I would see already uh, within just the first couple of weeks of March for Science um, being born, people were already working together, complete strangers, to help pool resources and to share um, activities and ideas and to help each other um, with outreach efforts. It's been amazing. Okay, well, that's all the time we have. Uh, listeners can learn more about the March for Science at www.marchforscience.com. Valerie, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. And one more thing before I leave, I would love to encourage people to obviously join us on April 22, but also to please register at the website www.marchforscience.com slash RSVP. That will really help us tell a story of who came and why. Uh, hope to see you there. Hey, thanks again. Thanks for joining us. Please leave any feedback and comments at realclearpolitics.com.